In 2001, at age 18, Clinton Young was newly released from Texas Juvenile Prison and was the youngest and newest member of a group of acquaintances with David Page, Mark Ray, and Darnell McCoy. That November, Clinton was present when David Page shot and killed two men in separate incidents, Doyle Douglas and Samuel Petrie. After the second incident, Clinton split from Page, who immediately went to the police to control the narrative. All four men were brought in, and while Clinton refused to cooperate, Ray and McCoy joined Page in exchange for leniency. When it became clear that Clinton was being targeted for the death penalty, he made suggestions to police that turned up evidence corroborating his innocence. However, that evidence was either explained away, ignored, or disappeared. The state's case at trial relied solely on the incentivized testimonies of Page, Ray, and McCoy. The defense failed to point out conflicting details and inconsistencies in their testimonies or the ballistics and DNA evidence that corroborated Clinton's version of events. Without access to destroyed or missing evidence that exculpated Clinton, he was convicted and sentenced to death. While Clinton's appeals were repeatedly denied, growing evidence of Page, Ray, and McCoy's false testimony, as well as new forensic evidence exculpating Clinton, eventually led to a stay just a week ahead of his execution date in 2017. Soon, David Page's confession on the record, along with the revelation of significant prosecutorial misconduct affecting hundreds of cases, including Clinton's, led the court to overturn his conviction. But he's not out of the woods yet. This is Wrongful Conviction. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond zero vision. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. 
Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. So often, since I started making this show over five years ago, we do an episode where I go, okay, now I've heard everything. But today, <laughs> well, maybe after today I can really say that because you're going to hear some stuff today that is truly mind-blowing, even by the crazy standards of the wrongful conviction cases that we cover week in and week out. Because this case involves an innocent guy who ended up being sentenced to death. We've heard that story before. It involves an advocate who moved from the Netherlands to Texas so that she could represent and try to get justice for our subject today, Clinton Young. And get ready for this one. It involves a prosecutor who was moonlighting, writing opinions for the judge. Yeah, you heard that correctly. The prosecutor was making a little extra money on the side, writing rulings in his own cases. So now I can catch my breath and introduce the very woman I was just talking to you about. I'm proud to say attorney, Meryl Pontier. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. And now, fresh out of death row, actually, those are some crazy words to even have to say, and live from the Midland County Jail, we have our featured guest today, Clinton Young. Clinton, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, to explain this to our audience, Clinton is off death row. Otherwise, I'd be conducting this interview in person at the Polunsky Unit in Livingston, Texas, outside of Houston. But instead... He's on the phone from Midland County Jail, where he's awaiting a decision about whether he will be retried or perhaps released to await retrial, or the charges may be dropped altogether, considering the story that you're about to hear. And I feel like I really should give a bit of a disclaimer here, as some of our guests have exhibited criminal behavior prior to their wrongful conviction. That's definitely true for Clinton. I mean, he, you know, grew up in a very difficult environment, you know, had a history of drug use and car theft and different run-ins with the law, all of which are just background that ultimately led to him being present during the commission of two murders for which he bears no culpability other than being next to someone who decided to make that grim choice to kill the same person that ultimately pointed the finger at him. Now, by his own admission, he could have done more to bring that person to justice, but The fact is, he did not plan or take part in these murders. So while you may not agree with all of Clinton's choices, first of all, you can't walk a mile in his shoes. And two, he didn't actually kill anyone. He's innocent of both murders for which he was convicted. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Clinton, tell us about your life growing up. Well, I guess to show how my life began in a chaotic past. My mother was 17. My father was 35. He lied about his age. A lot about having kids. She ends up pregnant. They get married. He was very, very, very abusive to her and uh, his other children. So after she has me, he continues to beat on her. So she finally leaves. Matter of fact, my dad basically kidnapped me from my mom and only would give me back to her if she signed a paper saying that she wouldn't request child support and all this stuff. So fast forward some time. He meets my stepfather and they move in together. They get married. I was hyperactive also, and 
eventually the school decided to put me on ADD medication, Ritalin. And that didn't help anything. You know, it made me feel worse. And, you know, I had problems in school. Beyond that, growing up, you know, my stepfather, unfortunately, was an alcoholic. And I wasn't his son. There's usually a dynamic that takes place with stepchildren and stepparents. There's usually a conflict. So then my mom and my stepfather are arguing all the time because how he acts towards me. And so my home life was really chaotic growing up. Well, that would be such a difficult situation to grow up in for anyone. And from that environment, you ended up with some run-ins with the law. And these were minor things, relatively speaking, but such that you ended up spending two and a half years in juvenile prison in Texas. So this all started in the Longview area in Texas. Clinton just got out of juvenile prison. And I think that traumatized him heavily. And he got addicted to drugs and started hanging out with the people that you don't want your kids to hang out with. Mark Ray, David Page, and Darnell McCoy, his co-defendants in this case. One day in November 2001, David Page, Darnell McCoy, Mark Ray, Clinton, and Doyle Douglas were all sitting in a car and they were on their way to buy drugs. Clinton was sitting in the passenger seat and Doyle Douglas was driving the car. It was his car. And the other three were sitting in the back. And as soon as they arrived at the house where they were going to buy drugs, David Page got out of the car, got up to the front door of the house. There was some confusion. There was no drugs. They didn't buy drugs. And David Page walks back to the car. And he's standing on the left side of the car. Clinton is still sitting inside on the passenger seat. And at that point, Doyle Douglas gets shot in the head twice. David Page has always said that Clinton was the one who did it. And Clint has always said that no, David Page did that. And it's important to note that it doesn't really matter what David Page said because Doyle Douglas's head wounds support Clinton's version of events. I was sitting in the passenger seat of the car. Doyle Douglas was sitting in the driver's seat of the car. And they said I shot him twice in the head, but... There's no way I could have because he was shot in the left side of the head and the back of the head. How can I shoot a person in the left side of the head and over three feet away if I'm in the passenger side of the car? It's ridiculous. So there isn't an opportunity really to agree or disagree about this gunshot when you'd have to suspend all disbelief. What they all agree on was that after that happened, the body of Doyle Douglas was put in a trunk and they drove to a secluded area in the woods where the body was dumped and... Mark Ray shot Doyle Douglas a third time in the head. Now, after that, they all get in the car, Doyle Douglas's car, and Darnell McCoy and Mark Ray are dropped off at their homes while Clinton and David Page drive off. And Clint was going to go see his girlfriend who was at that time in Midland on the other side of Texas. And David Page decided to ride along with him. And after a few hours in the car, David Page didn't want to drive around in Doyle Douglas's car, so he decides he needs a new vehicle. They stop at a Brookshire store parking lot, and a man named Samuel Petrie is kidnapped, and his car is taken, and according to David Page's own most recent confession, as he walked up to Samuel Petrie's car, pulled him at gunpoint, and said, you're coming with us. And, and Clinton, did you know this was happening? I didn't see him kidnapped. I was inside the store, and I walked out, and David Page was sitting in the truck. So I was like, hey, what's up? And he's like, well, we needed a vehicle. And so I got back in the car, 
And I got David Page's gun and I emptied it. And I even told Mr. Petrie, I said, look, man, trying to figure the situation out. I said, look, don't worry about nothing. That gun's empty, man. Okay? He's like, I don't understand. I said, look, man, this situation got out of control. We gotta just try to sort everything out, okay? But just relax. The gun's empty. And by that time, Paige got back in the truck. And I gave the guns back to Paige, but I didn't tell him it was empty. I was just trying to figure out how to best resolve it in the best way possible, right? I'm not saying I made the right choices in life or anything like this, but I took effort to make sure nothing happened to this man. I fell asleep shortly after that, right? Sometime period while I was asleep, he found out the gun was empty. I had woke up at Midland, and I told David Page, I said, look, man, you can't let this dude go, man. I mean, this shit needs the end. So I ended up calling my girlfriend on the phone, and I told Paige, I said, oh, man, I accidentally used the phone. I said, look, nothing can happen to this dude because they're going to trace it back on us. In my mind, I thought I was doing the smart thing, right, trying to protect Petri. I talked to my ex, and she says that the police are looking for David Page. And I look over at Page. I said, hey, they say you need to talk to your dad because the Texas Rangers are looking for you. And he said, for what? And I said, for the stuff that happened in Texas, I guess. And right when I said that, his eyes get big, and he snaps his head and looks back at Samuel Petri. What I found out later was while I was asleep, he's sitting there talking to this guy about his whole life story. He's done told him all kinds of stuff about him. So I go back to sleep, and I woke up with the gunshots. Clint was asleep at the time that David Page pulled over at the oil field, and the gunshots woke him up. And that's actually confirmed by several people who were in the Midland County Jail with David Page before trial, but also in 2010 when Clint had an evidentiary hearing and David Page was bragging about the murder, how he killed Samuel Petrie and how he put all the blame on Clinton and how Clint was actually asleep. I woke up with the gunshots. I jumped out of the truck. I ran back there. Petrie was laying on the ground and he was standing there. I said, man, what the fuck? I was cussing him out, basically saying, like, I gave my word. Nothing's going to happen to this guy. And I said, man, you're supposed to let him go. And he kept saying he knew too much, he knew too much. He said, he knew my name, he knew my name. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Several hours later, unfortunately, Mr. Petri is found shot dead in the head in an oil field. David Page goes to the police, turns himself in, and says that Clint was the one who did both murders, and Clinton later gets arrested in Midland. I mean, I don't know if anyone knows how they would react if they were in Clinton's shoes. He was dealing with somebody whom he knew to be extremely violent and capable of murder. He'd just seen him murder one person, ultimately a second. And I don't envy him being in that situation. And we know that so often in these situations, the person who goes and then points the finger at somebody else gets better treatment. So Paige goes to the police and puts all the blame on Clinton. But neither scene was ever really investigated, right? My understanding is the cops never even went to the first crime scene. They did not investigate the first crime scene at all. 
They did not go out there to check anything. The only thing that they did is they took possession of the car of Doyle Douglas and they investigated the trunk for blood traces to confirm that Doyle's body was indeed put in the trunk. And that was confirmed. After they'd done that, they destroyed the car. So they didn't test it for a gunshot residue or anything to determine from which position shots were fired. They could have done a little bit more than just investigate the trunk, but they destroyed the car after that. So no investigation can be done at this point. That's about as much as they did. Okay, so they destroyed the car and any other evidence in there, what remained of it anyway. And luckily, the ballistics and gunshot wounds from the first incident exculpate Clinton. But for the second murder, they didn't really do much of an investigation either. They took a few pictures at the Brookshires, but didn't obtain the surveillance video, or so they claim. The very same surveillance video that would have exculpated Clinton, nor did they find the gloves that David Page wore when he shot Samuel Petrie until way later, and they only found those when Clinton told them to go back to the scene, something he did when it became clear that they were going to pursue the death penalty against him. Because at first, when David Page pointed the finger at you, they brought you in, Clinton, and you knew how they operated and were not going to cooperate, right? You knew better than to cooperate, which is what we always tell the audience. Don't talk to the police. Anyway, tell us about that. They put me in one room, asked a question. I said, I want a lawyer. They put me in another room and had a female detective come in there and talk to me. I told her my name, my social security number, and my address. I properly identify myself. And she starts asking me questions. And I said, hey, uh, I told y'all I wanted an attorney. And she goes, you're going to die. I'm like, yeah, you're not helping your situation like that. Talking to me like crazy. So she storms out. And uh, they're playing this game where they open a door and in another room, diagonal, I see my ex-girlfriend sitting there. They close the door. They open the door again. I see my co-defendant sitting there. She comes back in there and she's all like, yeah, we got you. And he's telling us everything we need to know. I said, okay, I guess you don't need me, huh? But I've dealt with enough cops. I know what they try to sell it, right? And I'm like, okay, whatever, lady. And I said, look, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I was asleep, okay? I didn't kill nobody. And I said, look, test my hands, take my DNA, take my hair samples, whatever. I didn't kill nobody. So when Clint was initially arrested, he did not cooperate. But after it became clear that he was their intended target for the death penalty, he made a few suggestions to investigators that would prove his innocence. And at this point, police only had taken pictures at the Brookshire's parking lot and had not obtained surveillance footage that would have shown David Page kidnapping Samuel Petrie while Clint was actually inside the store. But that footage was either never obtained or conveniently lost David Page had also told them about a 7-Eleven where they had stopped, which had an unintended effect. They obtained surveillance footage that showed that Clint had not kidnapped David Page, but rather that Page was alone in the truck with the gun and Samuel Petrie for over 11 minutes. Surprisingly, the police knew that because David Page admitted it. And this clearly impeached the state's theory at trial that Page was kidnapped and under Clint's control. David Page could have done whatever he wanted in those 11 minutes if he was in danger from Clint, but he wasn't. Detectives testified to the existence of this footage, but the prosecution denied that it was ever handed over to them. So that was not presented at trial. Now, Clint also told them to go back to the second crime scene and find the gloves that David Page had worn when he shot Samuel Petrie and to test him for DNA. But unfortunately, the gloves were not used the way they should have been at trial. Right. They could have tested them for gunshot residue and David Page's DNA, which would have corroborated Clinton's version of events. They sent the gloves to the crime lab 
and instead of testing the inside of the glove for DNA and the outside for GSR, they requested DNA testing on the outside of the gloves. And the DPS lab was confused by the request. So they called up the Midland County District Attorney's Office. There is a record of this. The expert at the DPS lab, Department of Public Safety Crime Lab, said, are you sure you want DNA testing on the outside of these gloves or the inside of the gloves? And they also explained to them, look, these gloves are brand new. Whoever bought these gloves. And the DA told them, only do DNA testing on the outside of the gloves. So the ballistic guy was afraid to do GSR-type testing because he knew the chemicals could destroy the DNA. So basically, the way they done the request for the gloves, it made it where no proper test could be done on the gloves. My lawyer had to request DNA testing on the inside of the gloves, and it showed David Page's DNA. Well, the DA's office talked to David Page about the gloves and the lead residue. So David Page got on the stand and said, oh, yeah, those are my gloves. I worked in them all the time. I used them to move scrap metal, lead pipes, and things like that. That made it where the gloves was of no value to me, forensically. But the DA's office did not tell my attorneys that the expert had told them those gloves were brand new. And it just so happened, my co-defendant bought them gloves the night of November 24, 2001, at an Easy Mart gas station in Longview. Well, in 2016, my lawyers, they got permission to get testing on David Page's gloves, and it come back saturated in gunshot residue. Right, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, Merrill, how long was it from the time of Clinton's arrest till the trial? He got arrested in November 2001, and his trial started in, I believe, March 2003. So, Clint gets two court-appointed lawyers who represented him. And the state's theory was that Clinton so badly wanted to see his girlfriend in Midland County that he was willing to kill two people in order to steal their vehicles so he could drive from Longview to Midland to go see the girlfriend. That was the state's overall theory. And there was no DNA evidence, there's no forensic evidence, no ballistic evidence that conclusively pointed to Clint as the shooter. So all the state had to work with was witness testimony. David Page said that Clinton shot Doyle Douglas in the head in the car. Mark Ray and Darnell McCoy confirmed that. And Mark Ray also confessed to shooting Doyle Douglas in the head when they dumped him in the isolated area. Doyle Douglas had three gunshot wounds in his head. Two gunshot wounds came from the same gun. And then there was a third gunshot wound, which came from a different gun on the right of the head. The third gunshot wound was inflicted by Mark Ray. So we're working with two gunshot wounds that were inflicted while everyone's still sitting in the car. How is it logical for Clint to shoot Doyle Douglas on the left side of his head and the back of his head while he is sitting on his right side? And David Page is standing on the outside of the car on the left side. So he was in the perfect position to shoot the victim at that point. Right. Did the defense attorneys even bring that out for the jury? They do mention it kind of vaguely, but they do not point out well enough for the jury that that was the case. They should have done a better ballistic investigation. They didn't. And I think they should have better highlighted the position Clint was in and Doe Douglas was in and David Page was in to show that Clint could not have been the shooter in the first case. All the jury hears is David Page saying that Clint shot the victim. Darnell confirms it. Marguerite confirms it. 
Okay, so everything that they said about the initial gunshots that killed Doyle Douglas are actually confirmed to be lies by the ballistics evidence, which in turn offers an explanation as to why the rest of the narrative is so damn weak. Mark Ray, Darnell McCoy, and David Page all said that Clint was forcing them to do all these things. But at the same time, Darnell McCoy says all of them had guns. Then how is Clint able to force all three of them by himself when all three of them have guns? How does that work? It makes no sense. Then according to this wild narrative, Page volunteered to go and Young took Ray and McCoy home. Page testified that Young told the group, quote, if y'all squeal, by the time I hear about it, your friend's going to be dead, end quote. Then we're supposed to go along with the narrative again that Young called his girlfriend, Amber Lynch, presumably to make arrangements to meet her and learned that her father, Bart Lynch, was with her. Bart and Douglas knew each other, and Young thought Bart would recognize the car, so he looked for another to steal in Weatherford, but was unsuccessful. And how badly does somebody have to want to see their girlfriend that they're willing to kill two people, kidnap three other guys, all of whom are armed? I mean, if the motive was to see his girlfriend, my guess is he could have found an easier way to get there. Absolutely. And the whole motive doesn't even make sense because you're thinking to yourself, oh, now I'm driving in a dead person's car. Let's kill somebody else so I can get rid of this car. You could go and kill people for days on end if that's the theory. <laughs> I'm a, I don't even know what to say. That's a crazy thing. The jury bought the state's theory. And the weird thing is, I don't think the state believed it either because David Page at Clinton's trial said that he was kidnapped by Clinton and did nothing wrong and that he was a victim in this case. And then right after the trial, they all got plea deals. Mark Ray got a plea deal for kidnapping with a 15-year sentence and David Page got a plea deal for 30 years on an aggravated kidnapping charge. Yeah, normally kidnapping victims who witness murders don't get criminally prosecuted, right? It's pretty clear that the state knew Ray and Page were guilty and were just making good on a promise of leniency in exchange for their testimony. And Clinton, what was it like for you sitting there listening to all these lies? It was very frustrating because they're saying that I killed two people for their vehicles to go see a girl. And they're seeing people lie and lie and lie. And they're seeing cops lie. I remember looking at my attorney saying, man, he's lying. He can't do that. He said, well, he just done it. Can you prove he was lying? I was like, well, no, I guess not, right? They said, okay, it's all about what you can prove. The state did not preserve a lot of evidence. They destroyed evidence. They withheld evidence. So that makes it difficult, but not undoable. And I would have gone out to the crime scenes and investigated them myself. Right, like the gloves that David Page wore when he killed Samuel Petrie. There were many, many things that they could have done and, and didn't show. And there were witnesses at the time of the trial, actually at the Midland County Jail, who heard Page confess to them. He confessed that he was the one who committed the murders, not Clinton. Those witnesses were initially willing to testify, but then got a visit from the DA's investigator and then decided not to. Like I said, it's hard when you're fighting a state like that, especially with what we discovered later on, that they were so actively working towards getting him sentenced to death and executed. Yeah. Unfortunately, he was a convenient scapegoat for everybody. The prosecutors 
got to solve the case, right? The cops can move on, get it off their desk, and the three guys could get lesser charges for themselves. So everybody's a winner in this situation. If you could have a winner in such a situation, except Clinton. And so Clinton, without that evidence and with so many lies against you, you were convicted and sentenced to death. When they convicted me, I was devastated. I knew my choice was really life or death. That really hit me. People were telling me, oh, they're not going to give you a death since you're young, you're good-looking, you're intelligent, people love you, you're white, they're not going to kill you. I pointed towards the jury one day. I told my lawyer, I said, man, if those white folks think I've done this, they're going to kill me. And they looked at me crazy and they said, why do you say that? You're white too. I said, yeah, but I'm out there white. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with five good things a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected or check out a 
stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. About 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. Look at hearing the sound of the chains, the leg shackles, the belly chain, and the handcuffs. Hearing the chains rattle and drag on the concrete. And the guards knocked on the door. And it was a solemn event for everybody. You could tell, like, they all appreciated the severity of the situation, right? They're shackling somebody up and sending them to death row. And so I get in a van, and as we're getting closer, we get to Huntsville, and you start seeing all these prisons. And that's why I started feeling the weight of the situation. I said, okay, I'm getting here, you know. What's this next journey of my life going to be like? We get to where they process everybody. And I get out the van, and they know I'm going to death row. And I'm walking up the steps. This guard says, hurry up and get him in here if I had to kill him early. And I needed that. When I heard that guard tell me that, that set the tone for me right there. I realized then he was just playing around. But to me, it wasn't playing. So that just set my mindset for my time on there. As soon as I hit the unit, I was in the law library. I was fighting them. I looked at them as my enemy. I never was delusioned that they was my friend or that they cared about me or anything like that. You know, I always thought about what that guard said when I was walking up those steps. And so it just became a bigger motivator for me. So you're working your case in the law library to save your own life. And eventually, Merrill joined your fight about a decade later. So, Merrill, how in the world did you find out about Clinton Young, who was sentenced to death almost half a world away in Texas, while you're over in the Netherlands, presumably leading a relatively normal life? whatever that is, probably more or less the life your parents envisioned for you, which I'm guessing is probably not this one. (laughs) They definitely did not imagine I would move to Texas. In 2014, I was in law school in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and I just got back from an internship in New York City where I interned for a defense attorney who was working on white-collar crimes and representing people who took a lot of money from Wall Street, for example. And I was very interested in the American criminal justice system. And when I got back in 2014, I I did some research and I watched documentaries and I, I read online about anything I could get my hands on. And I saw a documentary about the death penalty in Texas. And Clancy Young was interviewed about what it was like being on death row. And he said, I did not get a fair trial. I'm innocent. I didn't kill these two people. And at the time, I did not know whether or not that was true, but I saw the difference by looking at him and he was so young and he was sentenced to death at 19. And I started thinking about the clients that I helped in New York City who were very rich, would not go to prison, had a lot of money to hire the best attorneys. And Clint didn't have that. And he was on death row for a crime he said he didn't commit. And that contrast, that really got to me. I kept thinking about it and decided to write him a letter. And yeah, he wrote me back. And that's how that story started. So let's talk about the post-conviction litigation. And the story doesn't get any less crazy here. 
So in 2017, Clint has been through the entire appeals process and he's lost everything. And they set his execution date for October 26, 2017. And that's when Clint's defense lawyers requested to do new testing on the gloves found at the second crime scene. The gloves were previously tested for DNA and they found David Page's DNA on the inside and Clinton's DNA was excluded. So we know that David Page wore those gloves. Those gloves were found in very close proximity to the victim and they tested it for gunshot residue. An expert wrote a report on it and he said, I found gunshot residue. And given the location and the amount of the gunshot residue that I found on these gloves, I really only have one conclusion, and that is that the person who was wearing the gloves was at the same time also firing a gun. And the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on October 18 stayed his execution because of possible false testimony given by David Page during Clinton's trial. Wow. So just a week before the execution. And there's some other information you got at that time as well, right? Exactly. A couple of days after, the Midland County DA, Laura Nodov, sends an email to Clint's attorneys saying, oh, by the way, I did an interview with David Page a couple of weeks ago. It's not material to the conviction at all, but here's a copy. Good luck with it. Clint's attorneys listen to the tape and discover that David Page gives a confession in that interview, and he says... I was the one who kidnapped the second victim. So the Midland County DA's office withheld that tape to only give it to the defense team until after his execution got stayed. Would they have turned it over if Clinton's execution was not stayed? No, I don't think so. They wanted to bury that, even though that interview alone would have given Clinton a stay of execution. They would have buried that and they would have buried him. Exactly. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals gave Clinton an evidentiary hearing, finally, in 2019, on the possible false testimony of David Page. And included in that hearing was going to be the withholding of the favorable interview and confession by David Page. Two days before that evidentiary hearing was going to take place, Laura Nodolf sends a message to Clint's defense team and says, Oh, we just found some documents. We are probably going to end up as witnesses ourselves in this case now, so it's better if we recuse. The evidence shows that Ralph Petty, who was an assistant district attorney for the Midland County DA's office, for 17 years while he was prosecuting Clinton, had also worked as a paid law clerk for the judges who were presiding over Clinton's case. And in that capacity, he drafted rulings for the judges on Clint's case. He decided on motions. He was interviewing witnesses. The list goes on and on. It's absolutely insane. So that was discovered only two days before that hearing was going to take place. Very conveniently, I must say, because now no one was going to look at the withholding of that tape of David Page. Because the evidentiary hearing got postponed, obviously. This was huge news. And Clint's attorneys filed a new writ application, asked the CCA to reopen the case based on prosecutorial misconduct. And they did. And they held a short evidentiary hearing in January this year. And in April, there were closing arguments. And normally, when you have closing arguments after an evidentiary hearing, 
a trial judge is going to take a few weeks to decide on what recommendation he's going to give to the CCA. And Clint's attorneys obviously said, we need a new trial judge. This is unheard of. This is outrageous prosecutorial misconduct. Clinton never had a fair trial. The state, interestingly enough, first said, well, we can kind of see that this is not great. However, later on, they said, you know what, judge? We actually think that Ralph Petty built an ethical wall between his work for the DA's office and his work for the judge. So really, we don't see anything wrong with this. We should just keep the conviction intact. The idea that he was able to build an ethical wall in between his work as a prosecutor and his work basically judging his own work. <laughs> it's like, it's literally the wolf guarding the hen house. The beautiful thing is the trial judge, he didn't believe it either. He didn't buy any of that. During the closing arguments, everyone had said what they wanted to say. And I was about to close it off because it was on Zoom. And the judge, instead of waiting a couple weeks, immediately said at the end, Mr. Young, I'm going to recommend that you get a new trial. And everyone was just shocked. I was shocked. I was like, did he just really say that? But he did. So that was great. And that recommendation got sent to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And in September, they completely vacated Clinton's conviction and death sentence. And in October, he was taken off of death row and sent back to the Midland County Jail, where he is now awaiting his new trial. So Clinton, in September of 2021, when you heard this, that after all this time on death row and coming within a week of being executed, your conviction was being overturned. What was that moment like for you? Okay, I was sitting there talking to a friend of mine, and I had been listening to the local news, but I didn't hear it. All of a sudden, Ricky Cummings starts screaming at me, and he's screaming so loud I can't make it out. And I go, hey, what's up? Man, you got your conviction overturned. They just overturned your conviction. And I was like, man, already? And so I was elated. I was excited, man. It was, it was a great feeling. So Clinton has been speaking with us from inside Midland County Jail for most of this episode. But in January of 2022, he was released on bond while he awaits a new trial. So, Clinton, what can I say, buddy? Welcome home. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You know, um, you know, I'm the first person in Texas history to get out on bond after getting a new trial off death row and still being under indictment for capital murder. It's never happened before. I certainly wish I could get out and do more. But uh, being on house arrest, I'm limited to what I can do. Though I must admit that this is the best jail cell I've ever been in. Huh? <laughs> Everyone here at the Romple Conviction Podcast and so many other people are just ecstatic about this news. So what does this all mean? What's the status of your case? Well, right now it's in the review phase because the prosecutors, they're new to everything. And so they really don't know the ins and outs of the entire case. And sometimes a fresh set of eyes is a good thing. There's also elections coming up, primaries and stuff like that that can affect who's working on the case. And so everything's just really in limbo right now. This case is not the same case as it was in 2003 when I went to trial. It's not going to be fought the same way. The evidence that was given to the jury has been attacked so efficiently and new evidence has been developed, such as forensic testing, co-defendants confessing in part or bragging about getting away with murder. There's so much more that's known. I think reasonable minds could agree that at this point, the state should really just drop the charges. It's abundantly clear at this point that Clinton didn't kill anybody. We still want to make sure that we do everything we can to make sure that this time he receives a fair trial. So the Clinton Young Foundation, for which I am the legal director, 
has made sure that Clint now has an amazing defense team. Dick DeGaron, who has decades of trial experience in Texas, and Mark White, a fantastic lawyer as well, are now representing him during his new trial. So the Clinton Young Foundation will keep raising awareness. We have to keep raising money to make sure that we can pay all the legal fees because a good defense team, unfortunately, in this country is not free. And I have to say, Dick DeGaron is a legend in courtrooms in Texas and even around the country. For people who do want to help, how do they donate? How do they sign up? How do they do whatever they need to do in order to help Clinton? Well, they should go to clintonyoungfoundation.com. And we have a Facebook page, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, you name it. We got it. We're going to put links to all of that in the bio. So please sign the petition, donate if you can. And even if you can't, spread the word, okay? Because together we can right this horrible wrong. And now at Wrongful Conviction, as everybody knows, we have my favorite part of the show, which is called closing arguments. And Meryl, first of all, thank you for just being a beacon of light and a force for good and for taking time to come and be here with us on Wrongful Conviction today. And, you know, I've really been looking forward to this. And Clinton, thank you for being here and for sharing your important story. We're hoping to see you fully enjoying true freedom really soon. So now closing arguments works like this. Same, more or less every time. I'm going to turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, kick up the volume and kick back in my chair and let you talk about whatever else is on your mind that we may not have already covered already. So let's, Meryl, let's go with you first. Then you can just hand the mic off to Clinton and let him take us off into the sunset. Well, Jason, thank you so much for paying attention and and using your resources to highlight these wrongful convictions because it's not just defense lawyers who do the work. It's advocates like you who can also truly make a difference by creating awareness and spreading this news all over the country. So that is just such a huge, huge contribution and very important work. I know how hard this work can be and how rare it is that we win cases, but once we do, I really hope Clinton's case can be an example to other people to never give up hope, to never, never give up the fight. And now, Clinton, over to you. I made bad choices in my life. It put me on paths I shouldn't have been on. I have suffered an injustice, but one of the saddest things about this case is the concept of closure for the victim's family. The district attorney's office convinced them that I killed their loved ones and that I was going to be executed. So not only have I gone through this process, the victim's family has gone through this process. And it's been traumatizing to them because they had this belief that there would be closure, that there would be this concept of justice, even though it's a false concept. Me personally, I was born into a life of chaos in many ways. I really didn't have a fair chance in life. And I say that what I want in life is that trinity of humanity, that's what I call it, to be loved, safe, and free. And so... People ask me what I want. You know, I want to be able to get out and have that basic trinity of humanity, you know, to be loved, safe, and free, and to be able to live life, to be able to do something productive in life. And one of the things that Death Row did was it actually gave me life, man. I met a lot of great people down there that wrote me. A lot of people done things to help me. The documentary that was made about my case really helped highlight my story and the injustice that I went through. And it brought a lot of good people into my life that wasn't telling me I was bad or 
because things they was telling me I was good and that I could do great things and I had this potential. And it helped install a confidence in me that I had never had in my childhood. And so it made me focus more about my legacy and what I want to do in this world. And I don't want to just be a good person. I want to be able to do great things. I want to shape the world around me. I have a passion for helping other people. I have a passion for justice. I've seen a lot of people get executed. They should never have been executed. I've seen how broken our system is, how it favors the rich or the politically connected. And so I want to be able to have a family, be free, live life, and do great things in this world. If I get out today, I mean, I could have the life maybe that I never would have had before because of the people I've met. I mean, as crazy as it seems, people might not understand it, but going to death row gave me life. And they made me a better person. It made me evaluate my humanity. It made me think about the people in my life that I've hurt. Like I said, it made me want to do better, to be better, and to accomplish great things. I got my conviction overturned, and I'm one step closer. Time will tell how everything works out. I want to thank Jason for this opportunity. Thank you. In addition to all that I've previously stated, now that I am out on bond, I look forward to living up to my goals, being the man that I know I can be, and proving to society that I can be a productive member of society and also showing the world that you don't have to throw away human beings, that we can change, that 20 years later, we're not the same person. I look forward to action, not talk. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max.